morning. The tan does stretch, but I'm not going to let you see that. I feel under no obligation to prove anything. Um, we generally, as, as a practice at Forest Town Church, pre, uh, preach exponentially through the, the, the Bible, but we, during holiday times, often go off the themes that we were on and just talk about things that God lays in our hearts and things that might be relevant, or we hope and trust will be relevant because God's laid it on our hearts uh, in these services. And I'd like to talk this morning uh, from a passage in Old Testament predominantly, um, hoping that I, I might reach into areas of need that people have this morning, because it would be great to think that we could all be very stable and even Christians, that our Christian life was just right there. You know, you, you, you get born again, you learn a few things, and you hit a certain standard, and from then on, things just go smoothly. You take everything as it comes, and you, it just washes past you, but I don't know about you, but it doesn't work like that in my life. Um, my, my walk and my, my journey as a Christian is up and down. That's a reality. There are times that I feel very spiritual and strong in the Lord and, and where things seem to be going the way that I believe He wants them to go. And there are times that I trip and fall and I feel incredibly weak and, and inadequate. And it's really hard, you know, because sometimes those times of challenge just pitch up in our lives when we don't expect them. They come sometimes directly after a time of great success. And suddenly feeling that you're in God's will, the next moment is, as we begin to walk in, in what we think is our success, suddenly we're just brought down by fear or by some set of circumstances that happen in our lives. And I'd like to encourage you this morning that this is something that happens even in the lives of some of the strongest people that we've shown in the Bible. But there are ways that we need to deal with them. And we need to be searching for where does God actually go when we freak out? Where is God and what is he saying when we're busy freaking out? If you've never freaked out as a Christian, if you've never felt inadequate, please come and see me after the service. You can pray for me for your anointing and I'll pray for you for lying and for God to forgive you. And we can get it all squared away. Um, but I'd like to, to look at, at the life of a powerful prophet called Elijah. And I'd like to, to, to set the context of what we're going to look at this morning. Elijah has been sent by God to a very, very evil king that, that has a very evil queen in leading Israel at that time. A guy called Ahab who has a wife called Jezebel who's so evil that her name has gone down in history as you're a Jezebel. You're, a, you're, a, you're not a, a great person. Um, and they have been taking the people of Israel away from God. She worships Ashtaroth and Baal and she's got Ahab to do the same and to put Ashtaroth poles and, 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 and Baal uh, idols and the people have begun to worship. And God reaches into what's going on and he sends this prophet Elijah the Tishbite. I think that's a cool name. There's such cool names in the Bible. Elijah the Tishbite. I have no idea what it means, and I don't know what a tish looks like and why it would bite you, but he was Elijah the Tishbite, and he was quite a rugged dude, and he gets sent to King Ahab to say to him that God is not happy with what you're doing, and as a consequence, it's not going to rain in Israel, and, and a drought and a famine descends on the country, and in that time, Elijah's looked after. First of all, God takes him to a stream and he stays there for a while and he's fed by ravens. I, I don't know how that looked, but ravens bring him food and he drinks from the stream, the Bible tells us uh, in, in the book of Kings, in First Kings. I don't know what the ravens brought, whether they were 
happy meals or whatever it might be, but he's, he's taken care of. And then when that comes to an end and the stream dries up, God takes him to a widow in a place called Zarephath and, and she provides for him and he reaches miraculously into the life of her family in that time. So in the midst of, of tough times in Israel, things are okay for Elijah. And then it says, after a long time in the third year, the third year of drought, and, and three years of droughts, you know, that's really sapped everybody's strength. You know, I, I come from, from Africa, and, and a drought there is when it hasn't rained for about four months. So coming here, and it doesn't rain for about six days, and there's a host pipe ban, and people are laying in stocks of water, something that I had to get used to. But this was three years. And God says to him, go and speak to Ahab, I'm going to send rain. And Elijah goes to Ahab, and he says to him, we need to sort this thing out with the people, that they're following idols and, and God. I'm basically challenging you. And he says, we need to come together, bring all your prophets of Baal. And there were 450 of them. And bring them and bring the people and we're going to have basically a showdown, kind of a gunfight at the OK Corral in a spiritual way. And you probably have heard or read the story at some stage. The prophets of Baal come along and Elijah says, we're going to offer offerings to our, to our God and we want him to bring down fire to accept those offerings. And so they start and they put their offerings out and their, their, their sacrifices, their things, and they begin to call upon their God and nothing happens. For a long time, nothing happens. They begin to dance and cut themselves and they begin to cry out. And Elijah just mocks them as they're doing that and says, where's your God? Has he, has he disappeared? Has he gone somewhere? Is he busy doing business somewhere else? And when they finally exhausted themselves, he then goes forward and with 12 stones he builds an altar and he puts the offering on the altar and then he digs a trench around the altar and he gets them to bring enough water to absolutely soak the altar and the offering and fill the trench all around and then he prays and he says, God, show your power. And fire falls and consumes the offering, the altar, dries up the water and it's a tremendously powerful sign of God's power that is being operated through Elijah. He's the instrument that God is using to bring this incredibly visual and powerful miracle to pass in which he shows, I am God and I'm with this guy called Elijah. And they kill the prophets of Baal and Ahab heads off back to town and Elijah's praying and God after three years brings rain and it rains down. What a tremendous success. So far, things are on a roll for Elijah. He's come and said it's not going to rain, and it didn't rain, but he was taken care of. Then he came and said it is going to rain, but we're going to have this demonstration first, and it's just as he wanted it to be, as God planned it to be. And God has moved through him, and he's seen it in a tangible and powerful way. I've been with the Lord since I was nine years old, I became a Christian. I've not seen anything like that. I've seen some stuff happen, but I've not seen fire come from heaven and burn up an altar Something as dramatic as that. Elijah's seen all these things and, and he's empowered by God. He's just, everything about him is going, well, it says that he actually hitched up his robes and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot back to Jerusalem. He, he, like everything's going for Elijah. And then it says this, 1 Kings 19 and verses 1 to 18. I don't want to read the whole thing for you. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. She says, I'm going to kill you. Okay? 
And this is Elijah. God has taken him through three years of drought and God has had him show down 450 prophets of Baal and he has run ahead of, this is Elijah. I mean, this guy's on a roll. And she says to him, this one lady, Jezebel, a pagan who God has just showed her God has no power, she sends a message to Elijah and says, I'm gonna get you killed. And it says Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Has that happened to you? You've been trundling along and God has been working in your life and things have been going really, really well and you've seen God move and things are great and then suddenly something comes out of left field that you hadn't planned for and you're rattled and you start running for your life. And Elijah goes into a real challenging time. It says, he ran for his life and when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Slaying him down, I think. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Where did this come from? This wave of depression sweeping up inside him, this lack of confidence, this sense of, I can't cope anymore. When the pressure was really, really on, during the time that the drought was on, if you go and read this, go and have a look in, in, in 1 Kings and round about chapter 19, chapter 17, 18, 19, and so forth, you'll find that while he was being cared for by the ravens and while he was in Zarephath and the widow was looking after him, Ahab had people looking for him. He was under threat all that time, but he was fine. Ahab wanted to kill him, but he was fine. Then he comes and he's confronted by these 450 prophets and he's fine. And then God brings rain like he said it would and he's fine. And he has one threat from Jezebel. Jezebel just finds somewhere in his armor to get a barb through. Something about her frightens him. And he says to God, I've had enough. I've had enough. I can't go on anymore. I'd rather die. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into the cave, into a cave, and spent the night. He's in full retreat, 40 days and 40 nights of running away from the danger, of trying to get lost, of saying to God, why don't I just die? This is Elijah. This is the Tishbite. This is the man that people saw do these powerful things. This is not some wishy-washy person that's just suddenly got afraid of their own shadow. There's real terror in this man. And he goes into the cave. And it says, and the word of the Lord came to him. And the word of the Lord came to him. And God didn't say, oh, my poor Elijah. What's wrong, Elijah? Oh, my poor Elijah, hiding you in the cave. I feel so sorry for you. God says to him, what are you doing here? That's what he says to him first. He says, what are you doing here? Why are you here? What are you here for? And Elijah has in his mind built up why he's there. 
He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He's basically saying, you owe me. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. He's saying, well, you owe me because I've been very zealous for you, and, and now I'm the only one left, and I'm afraid. And now they're trying to kill me too. Doesn't refer to the fact that him alone, 450 prophets of Baal, and God just took the roof off the place. He says, now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And now God does some interesting things. It says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. A wind that can shatter rocks, a massive, demonstrative, powerful event takes place. And Elijah's in the cave and this is happening outside. The mountain's being torn by this incredible wind, but it says, but God was not in the wind. This was not God choosing to change the circumstances using a wind so powerful it could tear. He didn't send that wind to rip the roof off Ahab's palace and blow him into the sea. It says God was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, which... I experienced a fairly small earthquake in South Africa in 1969. There was a series of small earthquakes in the Cape. They, they were enough to knock down some houses over the epicenter. And we lived quite a long way from the epicenter. But I can tell you, even those little earthquakes, it scared the dickens out of me. I was just going to bed that evening. I was about 12 years old, I think 10 or 12 years old. 12, I must have been. And... I'd actually laid down on my bed and the bed began to move and I thought my brother coming to the room was messing around and I, and I said, leave me alone and turned around and my cupboard was swaying and the windows were opening and closing and the ground was shaking and I ran outside and the whole family did and the telephone poles were swaying and it was terrible because you couldn't switch it off and there was nowhere stable to go and it was a minor one. There's a great earthquake that takes place here. It's, it's, the earth itself is shuddering and yet it says God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. It's a bit like a sort of a jazz funk band, earth, wind, and fire. All these things come along. But God's not in any of these enormously powerful demonstrations of what nature needs to do when God makes his presence. Where, and then it says, and after the wind, there was an earthquake, and the Lord is not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he again says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left now, and they're trying to kill me too. He repeats himself. God's repeated himself. What are you doing here? And Elijah now absolutely knowing that he's standing before the power of Almighty God. This quiet voice speaking to him when all of the noise around him has subsided. This quiet voice says to him, why are you here? And from inside his fears, he speaks them out again. And you know what? I find it amazing. God does not say, okay, let's address these issues one by one. Let's see about whether you are the only prophet left. Let's see whether you are in danger. God just says this to him. 
And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat from Abel Meholoah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God says to him, this is what I want you to do next. He doesn't say, poor, poor Elijah. I understand all your fears. Let me start addressing them. We'll have a counseling session. Now, are you seated carefully? Begin to center yourself. Can you feel the ground under your feet? And he doesn't do any of those things. He says to him, Elisha, this is what I want you to do next. He doesn't, these things have come in Elijah's mind. He has created more than is happening. Is he in danger? Yes. Does Jezebel want to kill him? Yes. If you read on, does Jezebel get to kill him? No. She dies herself and gets eaten by dogs. Ahab doesn't kill him. He gets hit by an arrow and he dies as well. Elijah doesn't get killed by anybody. He gets lifted up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Isn't that awesome? And God says to him, I've got stuff for you to do. Don't forget who I am. This is what I want you to do next. Now, this is the next step, and this is the next step, and this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen. Now, let's go. Let's get going. Where does God go when you're freaking out? He goes nowhere. He stays right with you. But I want to say to you that sometimes... In the depths of our concern, in the depths of our fear, in the depths of our despair, we're looking for God to come in a spectacular way and take the problems and the challenges out of our way miraculously and just flatten them so we can see there is no longer a threat. And, there is, and then we will come out and say, God, I'm ready, let's go again. It doesn't do it that way always. It's very gracious and he's very gentle. But sometimes God doesn't just bring the solution to the problem. He says, this is where we're going next. You see, the things that Elijah was concerned about were real fears in terms of the circumstances that he found himself in, but they weren't God's plan for his life. The safest place in the whole wide world to be is in the middle of God's plan for you. Don't care where that is. I don't care if that's in the middle of turmoil in your family, turmoil in your job, turmoil in your country, turmoil in the world. And isn't there turmoil at the moment? Where's the safest place to be? Lord, there's trade wars going on. Lord, they're firing rockets to test them into the sea. Lord, they're threatening each other. Lord, they're saying it's going to be a recession if this happens or that happens. Lord, this is going to happen. Lord, that's going to happen. And God is saying, okay, this is what I want you to do next. But sometimes he's saying it in a small, quiet voice, not in an earthquake, not in fire, not in a tearing wind that's ripping things apart. Sometimes he's waiting for us to get over the other things that we're saying and building in our hearts, they're real. Guys, circumstances are real. And I'm speaking from a place of being somebody who, somebody who, freaks, who, freaks, who freaks out but when things don't go the way I think they should go. I'm not speaking from a place of strength here. I'm speaking from a place of brokenness here. But sometimes when we go from hero to zero, 
Sometimes when we think everything's going well and something comes in from left field and we're left feeling nothing that I felt I could depend on is there anymore and we start looking at the enemy and we start counting how many times we've been threatened by the king and about Jezebel. I mean, such a scary lady, Jezebel. And God doesn't go anywhere. He just keeps speaking in a still, small voice. What are you doing here? Why are you here? Why are you hiding in the cave? And then he can show his power, but he chooses not to come in the earthquake or the wind or the fire. He chooses to come and say, right, my son, we've come this far together. This is where we're going next. Now go and do this and go and do that and go and do that and go and do that. And this man of God rouses himself and goes forward and things change. I want to encourage you to listen beyond the noise. I have an overactive imagination. I read things into things all the time. You probably do as well. It's a, it's a human trait. Someone says this and I think they mean that. And someone says that and I think they mean that. And I start building up a worst possible scenario so that I feel to myself you're being sensible in building up this worst possible scenario because then you won't be shocked when it happens. Do you know how many days I've spent fretting and fearing things that have never happened? Because my mind says, be intelligent, prepare yourself for this. The circumstances dictate this is what's going to happen next. So brace yourself. Don't be naive. There is a place for being naive in God. Not to be foolish. The Bible says, sufficient unto the days the evil thereof. Most of us try and deal with the next seven or eight weeks worth of evil at all times. We're trying to make sure that everything... Elijah had held on through the tough times. Isn't it interesting that he fell apart when God began to move in power? You know what I think might have happened? Caught up in the great happenings of this fire coming from heaven, of the prophets of Baal being slaughtered, somehow, without maybe meaning to or realizing, Elijah apportioned some of that success to himself and began to think, what should I do next? How should I proceed next? What is the sensible thing for me to do in these circumstances? And in the middle of that comes a message from Jezebel. Tomorrow I'm going to kill you. And suddenly, because the plans that he's thinking about are ones that he's trying to create and he's trying to generate, it's not enough. And terror hits. And you know what? Once that fear begins to eat away, it just gets you on the run. And he goes from laughing at the prophets of Baal and saying, where's your God? To saying to his own God, I'd rather die. I can't do this. Sometimes it takes a long time. You know, I just looked at a couple of instances of people who had to wait for God's plan and how they responded. Abram and Sarah, God says, you're going to have a son. They say, cool, doesn't happen, and doesn't happen, and doesn't happen. And along the way, they make their own plan, and we have Hagar and Ishmael as they try and make God's plan happen because suddenly they're taking responsibility themselves. God said, I'm going to give you a son, and Sarah says to, to Abraham, well, maybe we need to do something about it because God's not seeming to do something about it. And I can imagine God almost coming to him in his cave of fear and saying, what are you doing here? But they go out and they do what they think will succeed. And you can read about that because it creates a real problem which exists today. The descendants of 
Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael are still fighting each other for supremacy. I look at the situation with Lazarus, which we find in John chapter 11. A man called Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany in the village of Mary and his sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the one who poured perfume on the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent the Lord to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. But he doesn't go. doesn't go. And their fear actually happens. He dies. Doesn't get much more on the brink than that. Goes over the brink. He dies. And yet when Jesus comes, I find it so interesting, because when Jesus comes, Martha speaks to him and she says, even now, you can do something. They haven't moved away from him. They've waited for that plan. In the middle of the freaking out, they're looking for Jesus. And he comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. I want to encourage you that there are going to be times, I'm not being a prophet of doom, I'm just saying this is life. There are going to be times, and you don't know when they're going to happen, when you feel like your feet have been taken out underneath you. When you feel that you have good and valid reason to fear. And you're going to begin to demand that God respond in a certain way. Lord, I've done it. Lord, I need you to do something now. I need you to show me in this way. I need this person to say that. I need this thing to happen. I need to have that backup plan in place. I need to know what's going to happen next. And nothing happens. And you pray and say, God, send me a sign. And nothing happens. Can I say to you, he already sent you a sign? He sent his son to die for you. How much more does he need to prove his love? How much more does he need to show he's prepared to do for your circumstances? But we're waiting for something. We're waiting for the wind or the fire or the earthquake to change our circumstances. God come in and just punish those people who've raised themselves up against me. Just hurt them. Just remove them. Humiliate them, Lord, so that I can be justified. Oh, Lord, just... Give me money. That'll solve my problem. Or Lord, just have this person realize that they were wrong and come and apologize and nothing happens. And we get deeper and deeper into the cave and God comes and says, what are you doing here? I want to say to you that when you eventually start listening to that voice, very often he doesn't say, oh, my poor child. Although he's weeping over our sorrow, very often he says, right, now this is the next thing that I want you to do. Do you want to be in the safest place in the world? Be in the middle of my purpose for your life. You're in a boat in the middle of the storm, and Jesus is asleep. Why? Because he knows where the boat's going. And he knows what his plan and his purpose is. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If you're going through a time of challenge now, if you're going through a time that's fearful, if your foundations are being shaken, if you've been waiting for something to just suddenly change to make it feel better, I want to encourage you to go before God and say, Lord, what do you want me to do next? While I'm getting over this, what do you want me to do next? What's your plan for me? What's the purpose that you have at this time? Because I kind of have this belief and trust that if I'm getting on with what he needs me to do, he'll get on with the rest. He kind of gets on with the rest. You know, a whole bunch of people didn't like Jesus. At one stage, they wanted to throw him off a, 
off a cliff. And he just turned and went on his way to go and do the next thing that God wanted him to do. And somehow they couldn't touch him. We serve an awesome, powerful God. Just come back from some time on the beach in Wales, and there was one of the beach teams there. They still have them in Wales where people go and they lead the children in songs, Christian songs and games and things on the beach. And they weren't a bunch of great singers, and they didn't have a musician amongst them, so they were playing the songs on CDs and singing along to them. And they started every session with, Our God is a great big God. Our God is a great big God. Our God is a great big God and he holds us in his hands. And they say he's higher than a, sky, a sky, skyscraper and he's deeper than a submarine. He's wider than the universe and beyond my wildest dreams. And this is the line that I loved. And he knows me and he's loved me since before the world began. How wonderful to be a part of God's amazing plan. That's where your safety lies. You're part of God's amazing plan. Walk in that plan, I want to encourage you. Let's